Hello, David. It's really good to see you again, my friend. It's great to see you again, and it is the winter of our discontent. I'm not going to say what year. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, it is, it's winter, and uh, it's snowing as we speak. It's not raining. Oh, really? And last wow. night, we had probably one of the most phenomenal sunsets I've seen in a long time, and I felt very happy to be living here. And I posted this thing on Facebook. It's going crazy. It's going viral, man. You know, so. Cool. Cool. What you, what, you mean you got 25 people yeah, who, who like yeah, it? Yeah, you know, people really love it. It's viral. They love, you know, I do the t-shirt art. I've worked for years on it, put it up there, get a couple likes. Put a sunset up there, everybody goes nuts. Anyways, it's so cool. Well, one thing that blew me away when I moved to Ketchikan was because of the oblique angle of the sun in the autumn and spring. It takes six hours to oh, yeah. sunset. Yeah. And so you have these skies that are on fire for four to six hours. Yeah. and uh, I have an entire folder called Ketchikan Sunsets Man, that I took. Man, you sold your house here, which is a bummer, because last night's was so spectacular. Oh, it was awesome. But but yeah, I've been working in the studio, man. I'm uh, still drawing plankton. Right. Have you learned anything new about plankton? <laughs> Why, yes, I have, Dave. You know, well, like not what? only is every breath, every other breath you take coming from phytoplankton in the ocean. So every other breath you take is coming from the ocean. You mean from the great oxygenation event or, no, or continual? Continual. From today. Continual, today. Last, last Monday. They're, those little little plankton are out there working hard to give us oxygen. You know, every other Still. breath. Yes, to this day. And what are we at? 18, 20% of the atmosphere? Well, I, I don't know that. But Something I know, like no, that. No, Something the percentage? Like that. Well, they're at least yeah. 50% of the oxygen we're breathing is coming from No, pipes. no, I'm saying when you look at the Earth's atmosphere, it's mostly nitrogen. Okay. So now you're getting into chemistry. Yeah. And According to NASA, the gases in the Earth's atmosphere now include nitrogen at 78%, oxygen at 21%, argon at 0.9%, and carbon dioxide at 0.04% and rising. No, I'm out of my depth. I mean, that's good. It's good entertainment. <laughs> but here's, here's, what is the most um, the, the numerous creature, multicellular creature on our planet? Is this a test? It's a test. It's another random oh, thing okay. I learned is, you know. Let me guess. Plankton? Well, yeah, but what kind is a creature? Oh, okay. All right. So oh, it's zooplankton. Right. It's an animal. Right, right. So it is a uh, zooplankton, not a phytoplankton. Phytoplankton create oxygen. They are plants. Yes, they're plants. All they need is sunshine, man. Right. They need sunshine and they create oxygen. Mm -hmm. And zooplankton? How do you spell it? Zooplankton. Zoo, like a zoo. Zooplankton. Zooplankton, right. Uh, they are little animals. Little tiny animals, yes. And when I Googled uh, or Wikipedia plankton, they show a picture of a microscopic slide and they're so many different types and shapes and colors and sizes and spirals. I and... know. That's why I'm just going nuts out there in the studio drawing this okay, stuff. Is it a particular name I should know? I don't well, know. It's, I don't a, know it's an animal called a copepod. No way. A copepod. Uh, they come in no many, way. many varieties. There are thousands Those of species. Those are the ones that are in my fountain that Gary Staub identified. They are freshwater and saltwater. And marine, yes. And it is really not the planet of... The apes or the human beings, it's the planet of copepods, man. Wow. Does anybody figure out the mass? Because I remember when we were in the Amazon, you and I, Ray, they said for every human, there is 800 pounds of termites in the Amazon. Something like that. But yeah, 
And, you know, speaking of which, you know, for every human, there are seven to eight dinosaurs alive today. Okay, because of the birds. They're birds. Here's one for well, you. Well, figure that one out. If you, take, if you take all the cigarette smokers on planet Earth and lay them end-to-end -end around our globe, more than two-thirds of them would drown. <laughs> okay. I like that. Because <laughs> why? They're in the rivers? <laughs> yeah, they're, at, they're in the gutter looking at the stars, right? No, dude, like two-thirds of the planet is I ocean. I know, Thank I you. knew where that oh was my going. God. You just ruined my joke. No, All no, right. I knew where that was going. That's a joke I used to have in my show. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyway, so Anyways. copepods are the most prolific, or what, what do you mean, the mo most biomass? Or the yeah, most the most individuals, species, the most the individuals, I guess, you know, is what, and biomass, you, you, there's different ways to calculate it, I guess, and this is, right. you know. Because I thought beetles had the most species and had the most biomass on planet Earth, besides yeah, I mean, there are Insects. innumerable numbers of bacteria and uh, archaea. Yeah, you know, I, I once, arthropods uh, in general, of course, we can say easily it's the planet of the arthropods because arthropods include the insects and the crustaceans. Right. A copepod right. is a crustacean. Oh. So the most numerous insect on the earth are ants, right? Right. Uh, but No, beetles. No, I think biomass-wise, okay. yeah. I'll, I'll do a we real better quick do a Wikipedia. <laughs> yes, Dave, I was right. Although it's challenging to calculate exact numbers, the small planktonic crustaceans called copepods may form the largest animal biomass on Earth. The most successful single animal species in terms of biomass may well be Antarctic krill, Euphausia superba. And what is biomass, you might ask? It's the total mass of biological organisms in a given area or volume. Anyways, <laughs> uh, but we're doing paleo today, and we, and we have a really cool guest. Oh, is that the segue? That was the segue. I see how I just pitched <laughs> it over there. Okay, well, here's one for you. An ant we all consider to be one of the smallest creatures, and it's in, 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 in our vocabulary, you know. Oh, it's as small as an ant, yes, right? right? So what is the largest creature that ever existed on planet earth i'm gonna go with the blue whale a blue whale the blue whale is larger oh i'm sorry terrestrial creature a dinosaur of course correct which one the one that this guy found it's called dreadnoughtus 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 fears nothing yeah that's right and it's also a class of battleship that's right in world war one I, I believe yes the whole class yeah. of battleships but uh yeah no we are going to talk to a guy who's found Perhaps, you know, I always say, you know, it is the biggest. We'll get into this, people that push back. Sure. Why does he consider it the biggest? And this is where science right. comes in, because these guys all argue about this stuff. We're talking to Ken Lacavera, and I'm really excited about uh, talking to the man. I've never met him. He's a good friend of my, my pal, Gary Staub. Well, they're working together, isn't Gary? Gary is building sculptures for their new museum, which we'll be discussing. Yes. Also, uh, he is a champion for the environment and saving our planet. Let's call up Ken right now. Will you do that? <laughs> Right. Hey, Dave, meet Ken Lacovera, paleontologist and geologist at Rowan University, where he founded the university's School of Earth and Environment. He's also a fellow of the Explorers Club, a founder of the Edelman Fossil Park in New Jersey, and a defender and fearless promoter of all things dinosaur. And he's a professional jazz drummer to boot. So, Ken, so nice to finally meet you here in virtual space. Meet my buddy, Dave. Thank you, Ray. Hi, Dave. It's great to be here with you. An honor to have you on our show. And the big question is, 
are you a paleo nerd? I am totally a paleo nerd, and I, <laughs> I wear that badge with honor. Tell us why and how. Yeah, where where did the the, the nerddom begin? Well, when I was young, and um, you know, like a lot of people my age, the um, the astronauts were my rock stars. Uh, yeah. My my first memory is uh, is a Gemini mission, and then you know when the Apollo program happened. Um, I can see Dave's wearing his uh, NASA T-shirt right now. He, he wears it every day. Um, when uh, when the Apollo program happened, I remember I had just gotten a record player. My mom took me to um, a department store. She said I could pick out any record and um, Let It Be had just come out. And I was holding it in my hand, and then I saw the recording of the Apollo 11 mission. I'm like, no, forget the Beatles. <laughs> this is it for me. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, you grew up uh, you grew up on the Jersey Shore, right? And you're still did, on the yeah. Jersey Shore. You actually haven't gone very far in life. You're only an hour away from like where you were born or whatever. <laughs> That's but... right. Yeah, I've um, I've traveled the world, but I always uh, end up back in southern New Jersey. And I used to go to South Jersey. I used to go to Ocean uh, Ocean City, mm -hmm. not too far from you. And uh, so, as a kid, were you out fossil hunting? And did, when when did the dinosaur bug hit you? You were you said you were in love with astronauts, but well, on the coast where I grew up um, near Ocean City, uh, there are no fossils. So we're living on the Pleistocene there mm. um, with Holocene beaches. Um, so we had sand, we had mud. I grew up um, surfing and crabbing and skateboarding and hanging out on the boardwalk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in second grade, a woman brought in a box of uh, rocks and minerals and fossils into my Cub Scout meeting. And I literally didn't know these things were in the world. And wow. I got so excited by that. And then I got my hands on the, the Golden Guide to Geology, which kind of became my little Bible. And then um, later on in second grade, I wrote an essay about igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary rocks. And I wrote in there that sedimentary rocks are the best kinds of rocks because you can <laughs> find fossils in them. That's and, brilliant. You know, That's second that grade? I, uh, yeah. And, and now that I have a PhD <laughs> in geology, I can confirm that sedimentary rocks are the best kind of rocks. Yeah. Yeah. So you're also you're sitting at a drum set right now, which I, I think is so cool. That's my, my that's my Zoom, room. That's my yeah. uh, Zoom secret. But yes, I've been taking my meetings for most of the last uh, two years at, at a drum set. So part of your career, you were you and you still are a professional jazz drummer. You were, I understand you were played in Atlantic City. Yeah, for a year when I was uh, much younger, I was the house drummer at the Golden Nugget Casino in Atlantic oh. City. That is cool. Um, then I went out to California and I, I toured playing music out there. And then, um, and I thought that's how my life was uh, heading. And, you know, I was doing okay at it, making some money. And then uh, Carl Sagan's book and, and documentary Cosmos came out. And I consumed that and I just said to myself, no, I, I have to be a scientist. And wow. that changed the course of my life. So you wow. went from making money to making no money. I made no money for a long time <laughs> in grad school and, and uh, you know, finishing up my dissertation. But yeah, I remember a lot of years when I was making like $9,000. So yeah, the rock and roll lifestyle. Um, well, I guess you got, did you, hey, did you ever meet uh, Bruce Springsteen living in Jersey? I have not. No, okay, I have just not. Wondering. No. Well, anyways, you, you ended up getting into geology. You, you uh, went to Rowan University and you're back at Rowan University, right? Yeah, it, which is surreal for me. I never dreamt that I would be back. Um, once I got my PhD from the University of Delaware, I was very fortunate to land a job right away at Drexel University in Philadelphia. 
and I spent uh, about 19 years there. And uh, seven years ago, I began a conversation with the president of Rowan University, and I told him, told him about this crazy dream I had to, to build a fossil park and a museum at this amazing Cretaceous site um, right near the university. And six months later, I had moved to Rowan, uh, founded the School of Earth and Environment. I'm just hiring my 32nd professor now. We have three departments, eight wow. degree programs, hundreds of students. And we just broke ground on a $73 million, 44,000 square foot museum. Yeah, that's the- uh, The Edelman Fossil Park. Yeah, the Edelman mm -hmm. Fossil Park. But it's right behind a Lowe's, isn't it? It is, It's which is amazing, right? Like that's every paleontologist's dream is to have a Lowe's next to your excavation site. <laughs> um, right, so you can get plaster, I, burlap, and all the tools you need. When I worked in Patagonia, I would literally have to drive four hours to the hardware store. And wow. now I can see it from the excavation and I can be home for dinner, which is awesome. <laughs> well, tell so us you're, about this site. Yeah. You know, what, what's you're building a museum right at the fossil site, which is right near the university. What's so cool about this fossil site and what's the museum going to have in it? Yeah. Well, as I'm sure many of your paleo nerd listeners know, um, New Jersey has a very special place in the history of dinosaur paleontology. Dinosaurs are first discovered, of course, in, in Britain where they're known from really scrappy remains, um, you know, a jaw with a tooth, a little bit of hip, some scoots, odd collection of bones, um, which then eventually led Richard Owen to, to give them that name dinosaurs in 1841, uh, because he really couldn't tell what they were. Uh, he thought they were just these big puffed up lizards. He called them the, a tribe of crocodile lizards uh, mm -hmm. of the Mesozoic. And then uh, fast forward to 1859, and the world's first nearly complete dinosaur skeleton is found in Haddonfield, New Jersey, which Joseph Leidy named Hadrosaurus folkii. And then go a little bit further to 1866, and the world's first tyrannosaur and the Americas' first meat-eating dinosaur is discovered in Mantua Township, a mile away from the fossil park. That's Dryptosaurus, originally mm. named Laylapse, but that name was preoccupied by a mite. The second complete skeleton of a dinosaur in, in North America was, was a Tyrannosaurus? Yes, nearly complete. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. A Tyrannosaur. So these, a right. Tyrannosaur, yes. Right. The but, but you're talking the last four or five million years of the end of the Cretaceous, the Mastrichian. Well, in the case of Dryptosaurus, right at the end of the Mastrichian. Right. Yeah. Um, the Hadrosaur might be a little bit older. Are these bloat and float? dinosaurs then? They yeah. are, exactly. This is a marine oh. deposit, right? Yeah. The, so we are working in mostly the uh, marine Hornerstown formation. It's a glauconitic formation. That means this, this green sand that's just a beautiful green color. It's, it only forms in an environment influenced by marine water. Um, and uh, as you know, all dinosaurs lived on land, but every now and then one will die on the beach. They get a lung full of water. They sink. And then as the bacteria go to work, they fill up with decay gases, and then they float out to sea like a giant bobbing meat buoy. And <laughs> I love it. As the carcass rots, then parts of the skeleton start to fall. And so at our site, we're not really sure exactly how far we are from the Paleo Coast. That would be somewhere in eastern Pennsylvania, maybe 20 miles across the Delaware. But Pennsylvania is erosional, right? The Appalachians have been eroding shedding sediment to form the coastal plain and the continental shelf. So the coast is lost, but we get a really nice mix at our site of marine and terrestrial because we're just not that far from the coast. Mm. So you've got 
mosasaurs galore and do you have some plesiosaurs and big fish no plesiosaurs we do have um we find mosasaurs uh Hoffmani. we have probably two dozen species of sharks represented there we get the occasional bloat and float dinosaur the occasional bird is found there some bony fish some really beautifully preserved 3d uh bony fish um rays and then a, a rich uh uh, association of uh, invertebrates and a ratfish too, I believe. And ratfish, yeah, thanks <laughs> yeah, for thank reminding you. me. I had a to work that in there. And oh, wait, so this, is, this is all at Edelman Park. This is all the Edelman Fossil Park we have collected in the last uh, about, I guess it's ten years, eleven years. What's the um, acreage of this place? Well, our property is sixty-five acres. The quarry itself is four acres. Um, so you have and, to assume that all of New Jersey, under Lowe's and under all these. Uh, Suburbs and, and buildings have to be a, a, a treasure trove of Cretaceous marine fossils. Yeah, so there's a band of Cretaceous that's about 10 miles wide. Imagine first the, the coastal plain geology. Imagine it just like a layer cake. And then just tilt it two or three degrees to the east. Yeah, it goes from the southwest to the northeast. Yeah, and so you end up with a band that outcrops at the surface that's about 10 miles wide. It goes from Asbury Park, Springsteen country. Thank you, um, <laughs> the boss. Through the Fossil Park, through the C&D Canal in Delaware, Eastern Maryland. And, and that actually runs down uh, to the bottom of the Appalachians, runs around the, the corner in Alabama there and, and up a little bit into Mississippi. Yeah. So how is this going to be portrayed in the museum? How are these specimens going to be portrayed? Well, I mean, what's... Yeah, how are you telling the story of the quarry in the museum? I'm I'm sure that's all in there, right? Yeah, so um, the museum will have three big exhibit halls, lots of other spaces, but three big exhibit halls. As the visitor enters, we'll enter the Cretaceous galleries. And first, we concentrate on the terrestrial creatures. And this museum is very time and place-based. Mm -hmm. So in the first gallery, the visitors will encounter the dinosaurs that roamed the east coast of the U.S. in the late Cretaceous period. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, dinosaurs were cosmopolitan. We had every bit the diversity and abundance of dinosaurs of, as anywhere else in the world. It's just that the outcrops aren't great in the East, right? Our, our mountains are kind of nubby and embarrassing, and there's a lot of plants, <laughs> and there's parking lots. And so we just don't have a mountains. lot of exposure. Yeah. I mean, they used to be proud, right? But not so much anymore. <laughs> I like that. Humble um, mountains. Humble, humble Yes, mountains. they're humble. They've been yes. humbled by gravity and erosion. <laughs> So, yeah, basically in the West, you've got deserts and the outcrops are there. I think when you talk about how easy it is to find a dinosaur, you go to where the right rocks are. Right. The, and the right age of the rocks, but also where they're exposed, you know. So deserts are usually the easiest place. Exactly. But people, a few people realize that, yeah, if you can go to the beach or also there's exposures in urban areas or in suburban areas and that kind of thing. And maybe in your own backyard if you're on the right kind of rocks. That's right. So if you look at our quarry, it looks like an artificial badlands, right? It's like a four-acre badlands set in suburban New Jersey. Wow. Um, and so uh, that's in the so in the dinosaur hall, we we have the East Coast fauna, and then we go into the marine hall, and everything in that gallery was found on the property. Um, wow. So those deposits are literally under the visitors feet and there'll be mosasaurs in there. We have four different species of crocodiles that we found on the property. Lots of sharks and rays and ratfish and thank lots you, of invertebrates. And then we go into the Hall of Extinction and Hope. And, and what I really like to say is 
you know, dinosaurs are the hook, but really this museum is more about the future than the past. And so in this hall, first we kind of lay out the tick-tock of the terrible events that unfolded that precipitated the world's fifth mass extinction in which the dinosaurs and 75% of species went extinct. And we'll have a fifth extinction wall there showing them some of the, the victims, some of the survivors, and um, some evidence of that catastrophe. And then we, we literally and figuratively turn the corner into the Anthropocene, the time that we are in now. And we will teach the audience the, the truth of the climate crisis that we are in now, the truth of the biodiversity crisis. And then after they're really bummed out and scared. <laughs> the extinction, the extinction, and then hope. And then right. hope, that's right. Yeah. And then they enter this hope chamber where there will be projected stories of hope. If you know NPR StoryCorps, think of it like a StoryCorps for hope. Uh, reasons for hope in the battle to save the Earth's atmosphere, the battle to save the Earth's environments and biodiversity. And then they will encounter a series of electronic kiosks, which will connect them to local programs at Rowan University and the region, but then national and international programs, like, for example, the, the World Wildlife Fund or the Climate Reality Project. And so, um, you know, we really hope to use the past to contextualize the dilemma that we find ourselves in today and to give people hope so we can go forward to a, a better, greener tomorrow. Well, I yep. love how you uh, said that the dinosaurs, the term is often used to describe something that is ancient or not useful anymore. And you said it's not their fault. They died out. They were murdered. I love that you said dinosaurs were murdered. They didn't have a choice. That's right. And, you know, call me a dinosaur anytime. It's a great compliment. Global dominance for 165 million years, cosmopolitan, unbelievably versatile Every and adaptive. Every niche. They solve problems that human engineers still can't solve today. Uh, if you've ever looked up videos of human-powered flight on YouTube, it's a joke, right? Like maybe they yeah. can pedal this thing 100 right. yards or something, but, you know, or try to move tons over rough terrain. Well, sauropods had that figured out a long time ago. Um, well, was, uh, we were, Dave and I were just talking before the, before we called you is that I like to think that dinosaurs actually outnumber us today. So there are about seven or eight birds, at least for each one of us here at the planet. You know, when there's 7 billion humans, 7.9 billion, there's also 50 billion conservatively birds out there, which are dinosaurs. You know? That's right. They, num they outnumber us in individuals and also about three to one in species, mammals to birds. That's right. right and right. Um, dinosaurs, avian dinosaurs today are still the only vertebrates that have a breeding population on every continent because of penguins in Antarctica. Hmm. I have I looked it up. Only 11 babies have ever been born in Antarctica. Um, so humans <laughs> don't have a breeding population <laughs> in Antarctica, but dinosaurs McMurdo Station. Yeah, uh, somebody was telling me about the uh, McMurdo marriage and the tarmac divorce. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, don't they have better things to do down there in the Antarctic? Yeah, let's get let's... on to sauropods because uh, you, you brought uh, it up. Yeah, yeah you brought it up. Uh, and I've got tons <laughs> of questions about uh, the one called Dreadnoughtus. Shermai? Tranai. 
Shranai. And how did you, where'd you get the name Shranai? You named this. I did name it. Yeah. Um, Adam Shran is a, is a okay. Philadelphia um, tech entrepreneur who very graciously supported um, some of my expeditions to South Lucky America. Lucky Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, let's, um, how did that all come about? Tell us the, how you went about looking for dinosaurs down there and when you found it. Sure. I was just coming off of a couple of expeditions to Egypt where Myself and a group of colleagues from University of Pennsylvania went to the Bahari Oasis in Egypt in uh, 2000, 2001. And there we discovered what we would later name Paralatitan, meaning tidal giant, mm -hmm. um, which at the time was considered to be the, the second most massive dinosaur discovered. And, um, and then 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And it looked like it was not feasible at that time to work in Egypt. And so I started looking for another area to uh, study giant sauropods. And of course, you know, some very famous and giant dinosaurs have come out of northern Patagonia, but really no one was working in the southernmost part of Patagonia in Santa Cruz province in Argentina. What is the latitude of, of that down there? It is uh, about in the 60s. 50s. Oh, sixties. Yeah, it's closer to yeah. It's so you have to, very cold winters. <laughs> yeah, it's close to Tierra del Fuego. Um, right. We would be down there in the austral summer, but sure. we kind of flew over summer. It was never very summer-like. You know, some nights uh, in my tent there would be ice in the drinking water. And um, my first field season down there, I provisioned cereal for the crew to eat for breakfast. Oh. Well, you can't eat cereal for breakfast in Patagonia because it blows off your spoon before you can eat it. <laughs> Yeah, some uh, a mutual friend of ours said, ask him about the cereal for the field crew. Yeah, right. So I, we had to switch to crackers uh, after that. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I began to do you know, what we all do, looking at geological maps, finding rocks of the right age, um, sedimentary rocks. And then the most important thing, who's working there? And nobody was working there. Uh, Ruben Martinez was maybe 600 miles north in Chibut province, and then everybody else was over a thousand miles to the north in northern Patagonia. Because they were smart. I, it's warmer. Seriously, yeah. Well, this yeah. was fresh, fresh, unexplored territory. So this was yours. You hunted. That's right. Yeah. And so the first field season down there it was really brutal. Um, there was no road to get into the site. So we got into this area by rafting down a glacial stream. And we found some really big bones that year. Many of them were permineralized with iron, so really big and incredibly heavy bones. Mm. Some of them at the top of a mountain with no roads into the area. And so- Were uh, they sauropod bones? They were, yeah. So they were giant, they were huge. Huge, huge, yeah. And um, so we would jacket those, I would belay them around my hip down to the bottom of this gully, drove into town uh, across the river four hours away, had a welder make me sort of this metal toboggan um, sled them down into where the, the desert flat began. And then I hired a couple teams of gauchos and horses, and we would drag the bones out of the desert that way. Wow. Um, I knew I was not going to have a successful field project if that's how we had to work. So um, <laughs> on the last day of the field season, I took my Jeep and I drove way up north to this rickety bridge that went across the river. And people were telling me, you can't drive down this site, but I was determined to do it. And I drove my Jeep into camp that night. And um, then the, the next year when we came back, I found a little bit of money to rent a front end loader. And then we just scraped a 15 kilometer uh, trail, 
that we could drive to the site. It wasn't a good road, but it was a road. And that's what really made it a feasible project. And then in that second field season, 2005, came out of my tent the first morning, walked up a gully, and within minutes had discovered the two-meter femur of Dreadnoughtus. And that's wow. in all your videos there. Yeah, it's in a yeah. lot of the, the photos. Um, and it's back in your lab. Not anymore. Oh. No. So we ended up, uh, over, over the course of five field seasons, we excavated 145 bones of Dreadnoughtus. It's actually two individuals. Oh. Um, shipped them in a shipping container up to my lab at the time in Philadelphia, where we worked on them for five years. So it was too much material to process in my lab. So I kept a third in my lab, sent a third to the Academy of Natural Sciences, and sent a third out to Matt Lamana's lab at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. And then when the preparation was done after a couple of years, reunited all the material in my lab, which was an amazing site. Study them. We found eight autapomorphies that allowed us to diagnose this what as is a that? new. Say that again. Um, an autapomorphy is a is a feature in in the animal that hasn't been seen in any uh, other uh, animal. Uh, uh. Yeah. Is that so, like that wishbone vertebra? Could you explain that? Is that one of them? Well, the percula that could be one in in a group of dinosaurs in which that hasn't been seen before. These would be things like, you know, a hole in a bone, a fossa that, that appears in a different spot than, you know, in, in other ones. So this is an anatomical difference that is not seen in any other skeleton? Yeah, and, and that's how dinosaurs are diagnosed. You have to have at least one feature that sets it apart from other dinosaurs. Yeah. And really, I mean, the practical definition of a dinosaur species, right, it's not the same as the biological species concept, because honestly, we don't know who could do it with who, right? That's the biological species concept, a right. group of interbreeding organisms that's reproductively isolated. In paleontology, really what a taxon is, is a description of a creature made by a competent paleontologist that can later be recognized by another competent paleontologist, you know, so you know you have this unique thing. Well, yeah, speaking of the sauropods, usually, so you've got to look at the whole postcranial uh, those diagnostic features, right? They're yeah. set it apart. But isn't a whole lot of um, the species identification done with skulls itself? And did you find fragments of a skull of this sauropod? So it depends on the group of dinosaurs. Okay. Um, if you're working on theropods, their skulls are commonly found. And so a lot of the diagnostic features for theropods, the meat-eating dinosaurs, yeah. are in the skulls. In the case of sauropods, their skulls are almost never found. Yeah. So most of the diagnostic material is postcranial, you know, behind mm. the skull. Uh, and in the case of sauropods, most of the of the diagnostic characters have to do with the vertebrae of the animal. So that's what you you know, it, if I had a wish list of elements I wanted to find from a sauropod, I'd want a, a neck vertebra, a cervical. I'd want a, a dorsal, a mid backbone, and I'd want a tail. And usually those three vertebrae would tell you what kind it is. Does it also tell you the size and weight? Or do you need the, the leg bones, the femur? Yeah, they're not great for telling the size or the weight. To, to estimate the weight, you need the upper arm bone, the humerus, and the upper leg bone, the femur. And that's because think of quadrupedal animals, or think of any, any tetrapod. tetrapod, right? As Neil Shubin would say, right? One bone, two bones, lots of blocks. Right. right? And we all have that structure. And so for a quadrupedal animal, what are they doing? Well, they have, you know, if you think of the difference between a 
a horse and um you know an elephant like they have all kinds of different forms of lower limbs but they the all digits, still just yeah. have a humerus and a femur right? right so they support all their weight on those two bones so those two types of bones have to scale with the weight so and we know this from modern animals if you find the femur and the humerus and you measure the minimum shaft circumference that corresponds very closely with the mass of the animal. And so for wow. Dreadnoughtus, we were fortunate in that we have a humerus and a femur from the same individual, which allows us then to plug it into this regression formula and to estimate the mass. And it comes out to be about 65 tons. And 85 feet long. And about 85 feet or 26 meters. And long. is yeah. that the biggest of the big? Well, there's all kinds of different ways to, to measure big. So you could have longest, you could have tallest, you could have most right. massive. So what I would say about Dreadnoughtus is it would be the most massive dinosaur for which we have both a humerus and a femur. So it's the most massive for which we can confidently calculate a mass, but there are more massive ones out there, um, but they're known from scrappier material scrappier where we don't have those two bones. I saw on the Wikipedia site for Dreadnoughtus the list and how much of the, the animal you do have. It's a pretty impressive amount. What's the percentage that you have of the animal? Of the postcranial skeleton, um, we have about 70% by oh. types of bone. So that, you know, and previous to that, uh, Futalocnosaurus from Argentina was the next most complete uh, supermassive dinosaur, and that was only about 26%. And then many are under 10% Argentinosaurus, it's like 3%. Um, so it, it gives us, you know, I think the best anatomical view of a supermassive dinosaur that we have had. In one of your lectures, you said that Dreadnoughtus was probably the size limit for a terrestrial creature, but the one you found was still growing because the histology showed that uh, mm -hmm. it was still growing when it died. But a creature that large has to have efficient thermal regulation. Yeah. And an elephant that size, right, if you scaled it up to 65 tons, would cook itself from its own endothermy, which is something I never even thought of until I saw your lecture. Right. Because the heat generated in, in such a large creature, it, it wouldn't be able to survive that type of internal heat. But what, what are your thoughts or gave you any evidence that Dreadnoughtus, how did it regulate its, its temperature? Well, um, all of the big sauropods do this similarly. Uh, so there's a bunch of ways. So the long neck and the long tail of sauropods give it a, a huge amount of surface area uh, relative to their volume. So they right. have a good ability to radiate heat that way. They also have a very efficient gas exchange system in their lungs. They have, like all dinosaurs, they have avian style lungs. We should maybe call these dinosaur style lungs because they came first. Um, where it's kind of like a two-stroke engine, the, the first inhalation stages the air in a posterior air bladder, and then the exhalation runs it only one way across the lungs, so they never mix good air and bad air like we do. Inhalation two then takes that volume of air, stages it in an anterior air sac, and then exhalation two makes that exit, all the while you know that's, that other um, cycle of air is going in through them. So they can really exchange heat uh, that way pretty well. And then these big dinosaurs, as they grow, their bones, particularly the axial skeleton, the, the spinal skeleton, 
becomes more and more, we would say, pneumatic. It gets these pneumatic invasions of air bladders within the bones, and, and they get this honeycomb-type texture. Now, what we don't know, is that connected to the respiratory system? I don't think anybody really knows that. If it was, you could imagine them dumping heat that way as well. So I'm sorry, run that by me again. You're talking about, I've been reading about air sacs within the sauropods, but you're saying these are actually like in the bones themselves. Yeah, that's right. They get these pneumatic invasions of their bones as they grow. A pneumatic and, invasion, meaning a big pocket of air. Of air. Yeah. Uh, space. An empty space. Yeah. So otherwise, if that bone was so solid, they, they could barely move. It seems like these... These are delicate bones, too. If I've read, too, if a sauropod fell over, it'd be dead. It would break, well, that, shatter its bones. That's what I think. And so, you know. Yeah, if, well, I have a question about that. Yeah. Uh, okay, go yeah. ahead. Okay, you, yeah. You said it was so large that it could never have fallen over in its lifetime because of its massive size that it would have yeah. been fatal. Ribs break and pierce lungs. That's just your quote. Well, is there any paleontological evidence to support that? Maybe even in an extant animal, like an elephant or a giraffe, I was trying to imagine of the largest terrestrial creatures of today. Is well, they've got evidence? solid bones. They've got solid bones, so it wouldn't happen with them, right? Well, this, um, and the scale is so different. I mean, Dreadnoughtus was 13 African elephants. Yeah. But, you know, just the physics of it. And I, I don't know that we, you know, sauropods are usually so fragmentary. I, I don't know if we're going to find the remains that show that scene preserved. But, you know, if you just think of the kinetics of it, it's, you know, it's a bus, basically. It's a jumbo jet. But there has to be some yeah. sort of, of reason that a creature grows that large, but is able to have locomotion, have sex, run from a predator, possibly. I mean, or maybe skip from a predator. I mean, obviously, the tail is, is a weapon uh, and its large size is daunting. But, I mean, a creature that large, there has to be constraints in, in well, physics. I was going to say, you named it fears nothing, but mm -hmm. it should be afraid of falling over. To be afraid of gravity. We should all be afraid <laughs> gravity. of gravity. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. should all be. Actually, holes in the ground do kill a lot of people. It's actually astonishing, <laughs> but you just step into a hole and you're gone. But actually, it seems like uh, they'd be easy to hunt. You just have to, like, trip them, you know. But well, uh, <laughs> uh, you said, you mentioned somewhere that they're going to be in the next Jurassic Park. I got a great surprise in, I guess it was September, um, the, uh, the director of the next Jurassic World re released uh, some information and a little video and Dreadnoughtus will be in the opening scene of the next Jurassic World movie. Oh man, that's which so cool. I, I was like 10 year old boy, you know, crazily excited uh, by Fantastic. that news. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's <laughs> called, is it Jurassic World Dominion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there is a, uh... I've seen it. It's about a five or six minute opening scene that shows all these amazing dinosaurs. Yeah, I think there's a herd of dreadnoughtists in the opening scene. Did wow. they not ask you to critique it and change no, things? No, um, Steve Brusati, <laughs> a friend of mine who's at University of uh, Edinburgh, a very fine paleontologist. Oh, yeah. He, he, he got the gig to be the oh, he got consultant the gig. on all that right. movie, and I'm sure he's He spoke on your job. behalf. All right. <laughs> so wait, I want to get back to how does an animal so huge walk around this planet? How does it yeah. support its weight? I mean, I'll, look, when you stand next to those bones, they're massive. They're massive. Yeah. And and what do you think that femur, which, uh, what do you say, was three meters long? About two meters. About two meters. How much yeah. would that have weighed as a living bone? I'm not quite sure. I know as a fossil, it weighed about 1,600 pounds. It was really heavy. Yeah, but that's <laughs> infused with mineralization. Yeah, yeah, though. yeah. Uh, it would be, I don't know, probably a couple right. hundred pounds. I'm sure somebody could do the math on that. 
Right. Um, but the way they supported that weight, their, their limbs are very columnar. So, you know, they're, they're straight up and down. But there's an interesting thing going on in some titanosaurs, and these are the most massive dinosaurs. What you actually see is um, they have a very wide gauge stance. They achieve this in the front by having very wide sternal plates. So they, they basically just have a really wide breast and shoulder. Um, but in the back, they have a little bend at the top of their femur. And you think like, you know, if I was going to design a table and I knew I was going to put 65 tons on it, would I ever put a bend in the table leg? No, of course you wouldn't. And so what that tells me is hmm. that, you know, because there's that bend, that bone's going to have to be bigger than it would be if it were straight up and down. It's got to be oversized a little bit, but it gives them a wide gauge stance. And that tells me that stability is at a real premium because I think if you fall over, you die. Huh. So it's more like a tripod. It's sort of really planted and sort of splayed it's out. It's almost a bit. like well, no, it has it's like a bulldog. The, 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 well, a bulldog, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the center of gravity is lower. Yeah, and so you know, you were asking Dave about you know why achieve such a great size. Well, well, sauropods do something really sneaky in the ecosystem, which is that all dinosaurs are born tiny, right? Which is different than mammals. Mammals the Baby mammals scale with adult body size. So, you know, we're pretty big babies. Um, uh, a giraffe baby is like 300 pounds. A blue whale baby is 3,000 pounds. But all dinosaurs start tiny. So you think of dreadnoughtus as a huge creature, but it's also a, a little creature. You could fit a dozen dreadnoughtus on your desk, um, just hatchlings. So when they hatch, they're doing tiny herbivore things. And then they get to do sheep-sized herbivore things and cow and elephant-sized herbivore things and then herd of elephant-sized herbivore things. So this one species is taking up all these different niches in the ecosystem, capturing a tremendous amount of resources from that ecosystem as a single species, whereas today we might have you know, a half a dozen, a dozen species capturing that column of resources from the ecosystem, whereas this one species is able to do it because of the way they grow. Did you find gastrolists? We did not, no. Um, gastroliths. Gastroliths. Was I, was some, I lisping some, when I said this? Yeah. Some people call them gastromyths. Um, oh. oh. <laughs> ah, right. ah. I, well, let's uh, explain what a gastrolith is and a gastromyth. Um, a gastrolith means stomach stone. And so we know there are some animals that will ingest stones um, to aid in the digestion process. A lot of birds do this. They'll, they'll, we have chickens. You have to give them grit uh, that they can ingest. But, you know, I think the bar is high to say something is a gastrolith. I think it's not just enough to have, you know, a rounded cobble somewhere near your dinosaur. I think you need to find like a polished rock in the gut area of a dinosaur to really, you know, make right. that claim. I'm thinking of you excavating these, these massive bones that do weigh so much. Were they in a matrix also that you had to chisel away? And that's like a super hard matrix. This is only madmen and maniacs study sauropods and whales, right? Because you have to have a huge, huge warehouse to work in. You ship all of these things up to, uh, to Philadelphia to work on them, and then you ship them all the way back in container ships. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, literally a huge undertaking. Paleontologists who are smarter than me study small dinosaurs. Yes, I was going to um, say. It's, it was an insane undertaking, honestly. And um, yeah, it was in a matrix that was 
pretty much the equivalent of concrete. It was in wow. a very hard sand and mudstone. And uh, we, we were breaking rocks with pickaxes for like 13 hours a day. Um, that's mostly what I did. I would, I'd work on a pickaxe all day and I would empty everybody's buckets of rocks because people, when they're excavating close in with fine tools, they don't like to get out of position. And so, and they don't like to get up to empty the rocks. And I'm kind of a fanatic about having a clean quarry. Um, so I would go and empty everyone's rocks all day long. And that way I would get <laughs> to go to each station like every 10 minutes. And I'd say like, okay, excavate a little more here or stop here. or This is how we're going to do it there. So that worked out. Did you enlist legions of grad students to do your bidding? I would usually have about eight to 10 people on the ground with me. Um, some of them were my graduate students. Some were undergrads from the University of Patagonia. Um, I had a few volunteers. I'm very picky about taking volunteers on a field project like that. You have to really well, you have know to them well. live together and they have to have a certain amount of metal in order to, to survive those types of very harsh conditions. That's exactly right. Because if you don't love the work, it would just be absolute misery. You're, yeah. you're never comfortable. You're, you're always too hot or too cold, usually too cold down there. Um, you don't get enough to eat. You might have food poisoning. You're, you're and you got to be a nice and, and fun person around the campfire at night. You know? Yeah, ex exactly. So, did yeah. You, find, you get along, folks. Did you find any fossils in the matrix uh, around uh, Dreadnoughtus or any mm, plant yeah. or, or microfossils? Yeah, we found, um, we found quite a bit of wood, actually, and we published a, a couple of papers on the wood that was found, uh, named a new taxon uh, based on that. Not a whole lot else. We did find some teeth of meat-eating dinosaurs um, in that quarry. It was the, the way these two dreadnoughtus individuals were entombed, which is why it's so complete, is they, they got caught up in what appears to me to be a crevasse splay of a river. So rivers naturally build levees on their banks as they flood. And then every now and then those levees break, and the floodwaters, the animals, the trees, the sediment, whatever is in the river gets kind of puked out onto the floodplain. The dead it, animals. Well, dying probably. Okay. Yeah. And it, it, it gets into this liquefacted situation where the, microscopically there's a little bit of film around each grain of sediment. So they're not touching each other. So they have no bearing strength. And so these animals can quickly sink into this soupy mix. We call it syndepositional deformation that's going on there. Under normal circumstances, imagine a dinosaur just like a sauropod just dies and kills over on a hard substrate like a floodplain. Well, at that point, very little of their body is in contact with the earth. So it's very hard then for that animal to make the transition between the biosphere and the geosphere before the elements weather it away or scavengers tear it apart. That's why it's, it's so much more common to find nearly complete or complete tiny dinosaurs because they're easy to bury. They're, it's right. easy for them to make that transition to the geosphere. Very hard for sauropods. And that's, we got lucky with Dreadnoughtus in that it got caught up in a situation where it made a fast transition from the biosphere to the geosphere. Hmm. So with the plant material you found, was there any evidence that uh, uh, Dreadnoughtus was eating those plants, those trees? What, what, what's, what's an adult Dreadnoughtus, massive creature? What has it got to consume like a all lot. day long? A lot. Yeah, what, well, what is it doing? Yeah, how does it keep that engine going? We don't have direct evidence of what it specifically ate, but you have to think if you're 65 tons, you have a lifelong obsession with eating. Yes. And um, so these animals... 
sauropods are super efficient at everything they do. I mean, think of what 65 tons represents. It's a huge surplus of what comes in versus what goes out, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Dreadnoughtus had a, a, you know, a 30 foot neck. It could stand in one spot and clear out this huge envelope of vegetation, taking in tens of thousands of calories while burning very few. Just do standing there, for just grazing. An, yeah, do that for an hour and then take two steps to your right and do it again. And I imagine that's mostly what their day was. I think it was mostly eating and pooping and every now and then sex. But there has to be a lot of vegetation. Has to be a tremendous It has to amount. be lush. It has to be extremely lush. So in the Cretaceous period, it's very warm. There's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere and plants love that. So, you know, if that base of the food chain is doing really well, then everything else is doing pretty well too. And you can divide up that energy into lots of tiny creatures or fewer larger creatures, which for some reason seem to happen a lot in the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. Um, the conditions that we are sending the earth to today, higher levels of CO2, higher temperatures, not a good thing, like you might think they would be because they were in the Mesozoic, but they're not a good thing because we're achieving them so rapidly. With so much carbon dioxide, aren't the plants just oh so happy and uh, the plants will catch up and everything will be fine? On a physiological basis, yeah, but then you have to factor in all of the, um, the stress of environments changing rapidly right. and invasive species coming in. Um, so, you know, uh, with college students, I, li I like to use analogies that they relate to. So I'll say, what would be the effect on you if you drank a six pack of beer over the next 10 years? Right? Nothing. What if you drank a six pack over the next 20 minutes? Big effect, right? So pump all this CO2 in the atmosphere over 20 million years, no problem. Do it in a hundred years, big problem. That's what's happening today. We're chugging it. We're chugging it. Yeah, yeah. we're doing, we're doing a, CO2 I, I, bombs. That's something college students see. All right, I get it. All right, that's a very, <laughs> that's a nice uh, image or not so pleasant image, I guess. Yeah, let me let me uh, just ask you real quick, wrapping up the bone discussion. Are those bones back in Argentina? Yeah, so I had those bones in my lab for uh, five years, and then per my agreement with the Argentinian government, um, I shipped them back. Um, Argentinian Argentinian law says that they have to go back to the province in which they were found. So they are in Rio Gallegos, which is the third most southern city in the world. Um, in a, a little provincial museum there. And I'm also a, a woodworker. I, I build a lot of uh, furniture by hand. And um, I spent all that fall making a couple hundred really nice crates for the bones <laughs> of Dreadnoughtus, because I think that those bones will probably sit in those crates for the next couple hundred years. Oh, dear. They're not going to build a museum there, huh? They probably don't have the resources to do that. Yeah. I think it would be tough. But you scanned all the bones and got all the data out of them that you could before they went back. We did. We captured every element with a, with a pretty good resolution, uh, 3D laser scan. And um, so we have all that information. Speaking of scanning, you had a, was it a grad student that did his uh, thesis on one of the crocodiles you found at the Edelman Park? And I saw that video where he, uh, which looks like a giant gharial with a huge elongated uh, snout. That was a brilliant 
animation. And then he ended up, uh, t tell that story, he ended up getting a work at a very prestigious animation studio. Yeah, so that is uh, Evan Boucher, and he actually did a, a master's in, in digital media with me. And um, he worked, uh, he, he did crocodile dissections to learn their anatomy. And then he, uh, he scanned the bones that we found. We found a, about a 25 foot long uh, gharial crocodile called uh, Thoracosaurus at the fossil park. And then digitally, he put the muscles back on and then he put the skin back on and he taught it to walk and swim. And that was his master's thesis. And it's a, a beautiful piece of work. It is. And then he graduated. He went um, on an interview to a DreamWorks studio in Los Angeles. <laughs> he brought the DVD, they watched it and they said, which assets were you responsible for? And he said, all of them. And they said, you're hired. Everything, yeah. And so um, with his paleo uh, credentials, um, they put him on the How to Train Your Dragon movies. Oh, yeah. oh, fantastic. Well, you know, we would be remiss if we did not uh, give a shout out to our mutual friend, Gary Staub, who is doing some incredible sculptures for you for the new museum. And uh, Gary is a man of, uh, you know, knows his science and does small models and big models. I got to go out there and see some of these things, Ken, in progress. They're phenomenal. And that's you, all wait, I can you, say. You saw the stuff that he's working on for Ken's museum. I did. Really? Ray has seen and, it before me. I'm terribly wow. jealous. Wow. <laughs> so what well, are some we, of the things, the... Which, which I know some of them are surprises. Can you well, I, talk about some of them? For fear of uh, the uh, non-disclosure well, agreement, I can't. No, have, I don't know. Ken, Ken can tell us. Ken will sure, tell us. Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, when we determined to build a museum, the first decision I made was we're hiring Gary Stop. Like Good Gary <laughs> is just the best, hands down. Um, incredibly knowledgeable, a joy to work with, just super nice guy. Um, so I couldn't be more happy with the work that he's doing for us. And um, so Gary is making, he's reconstructing a bunch of dinosaurs from the late Cretaceous of the East Coast uh, for us. And then he's reconstructing a bunch of full-size sea creatures that were excavated uh, on the property. And he's doing just incredible work. I can't wait to show these to the world. They're, they are so cool. And uh, it's it's going to be such a cool museum. And uh, what, what what's your target date for opening? Uh, we should open in the late spring of 23. Uh, we broke ground. Uh, uh, Three years. Yeah. It, no less. About a year and a half. Yikes. Oh, um, you broke ground this year. That's right. October. Yeah. 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 So we broke ground just a couple months ago. Uh, I was at the site today. The uh, The concrete Footers are in, and they're starting on the uh, curtain walls coming up. It's yeah. exciting. It's really cool. And, you know, and speaking of working with uh, artists and that kind of thing, I noticed you have one of the most popular TED Talks out there, Why Dinosaurs Matter. It's a great book, too. And uh, you use a certain geologic time scale in there, and which I'm, I'm very appreciative of. Oh, jeez. I'm just, I'm just uh, to, hey, Dave, now cut, cut it out. So uh, let me get a little uh, little love here. Um, it, have you had people critique that time scale? Because I, you've used it a lot, but you know I've always thought that well, you know, if I did it actually to scale, it'd be a lot more okay, different. Can I say something? This is for you, Ray. It, that geologic time scale is the best one out there ever. It really is. When you look at, because I'm not you, fishing for that, but I'm just well, no, but but no, no, but I've seen them all, and I think you mentioned in one of your lectures, Ken, that. Most of them have CO and SY, they're silicon. This one is this, and they're just, 
they're they're not fun to read and look at and hard to like um uh james kirkland he does these amazing geologic stratigraphy but it's hard to read unless you get down in there with a with a magnifying glass ray your geologic time scale is brilliant because it's colorful it's cartoony and it is actual you 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 show what what animals are in the various layers but let me tell you i know why your ted talk is so successful ken it's because you do the bait and switch <laughs> you talk about dinosaurs and everybody loves dinosaurs and how dinosaurs were murdered and they should matter and then what do you do you stand there and you put it you lay it bare that we are screwing up our world and we have the tools now to fix it and that's why it's brilliant yeah well thank you and and first i agree with everything you said about ray's time scale brilliant oh, piece of science communication <laughs> so thank you for letting me use that um you know the way i think of it like if we just dig up dinosaurs and other extinct creatures and if we paleontologists just talk to other paleontologists about the things that we've dug up what have we really accomplished and very little i think so you know why why fund paleontology why suffer paleontology and i think it's because we have the ability to provide context and perspective to the world I love that quote that dinosaurs give us perspective, but what is that perspective? Well, so in the case of the dinosaurs, you know, they were these indomitable champions of an entire Earth era. They end the Cretaceous they're, they're as, as biodiverse, cosmopolitan creatures. They're doing just fine. They weren't going out in a whimper. The studies that suggest that, I think, don't have the stratigraphic resolution to make those claims. Dinosaurs are doing just great, and then they get murdered by a space rock. Nobody would have ever seen that coming. If you were on the ground the day before the asteroid hit, you would think these things are never going away. These, these dinosaurs will always dominate the earth. And the next day, they're all dead, like literally within an hour. That's, that's the new geophysics that's coming out about the physics of the asteroid impact. Like wow. the next day, they are wiped out. And, you know, what makes us think that we have this, you know, cosmic, decree of manifest destiny, like we're always going to be the, you know, the dominant species on this planet. Um, there's no guarantees. We got incredibly lucky. If you look at Earth history, it's all so contingent. The Earth doesn't have to have humans any more than it had to have dinosaurs. We just happen to end up with a present that has us, but it didn't have to be this way. I always say, you know, if you learn geology, if you learn to read the rocks, and you can read the rocks like a book, the rocks will start to whisper to you. And wherever you go in the world, they say the same thing. And they say, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this particular way. Well, you know, one of the things I, I came up with is the rocks don't lie. You know, that's right. They don't lie. The rocks don't lie. They're right there. But they don't. Yeah, I, I'd always thought it was all about us, man. Yeah. You know? Right. But I think so, it's interesting uh, is that the some of the causes of the previous four mass extinctions were climate yeah we've 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 got an asteroid and then we've got four horrible episodes of climate change and so yeah. we already know climate change is a, is a killer um just this last year we hit 419 parts uh, per million co2 in the atmosphere that hasn't happened for three million years so now we're back like to australopithecus time so now we've created an atmosphere for ourselves that no human or nothing much like a human has ever experienced and if we stay on the business as usual trajectory, we're looking at a thousand parts per million 
in 2100. Well, the last time that happened was 50 million years ago, and there were crocodiles and rainforests in the Arctic. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know that our species goes extinct if that happens, but I do think that governmental systems, economic systems, societal systems do not withstand that kind of disruption. So we're playing with a loaded gun here, and there are all these tipping points out there that we don't know about, and we don't know how close we are. That's what's astonishing is the tipping points, and there are, and that's what the the prehistoric past shows us. There's a point where things just cascade, and there's almost no turning back. That's you know? right, so, and I think people don't appreciate our incredible good fortune in that near the beginning of the Holocene epoch that we're in now, the climate for whatever reason, just really settled down. And we had this 10,000 year super stable period. There were homo sapiens for 300,000 years. They never formed a civilization until 10,000 years ago. They never settled down. They never invented writing and much else that was very complex. Why then? Well, because the climate got stable. And now the very thing that made our civilization, we're putting at risk. And that seems profoundly ill-advised. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have seen in our lifetime that paleontology has never been more relevant, you know, and hence uh, I, I, I'm a great uh, fan of what you're doing with the museum, with your TED Talk, and what we're trying to do here at Paleo Nerds, because I think if you don't know what has happened to the planet in the past, you're basically ignorant, if I could put it out there. Well, that's right. I mean, if, if you think about time, there's, there's three kinds of time, right? There's the present, there's the future, and the past. Right. We don't have access to the future. Nobody can do experiments in the future. Nobody remembers the future. The present isn't anything. The sentence I'm speaking right now is already it's in gone. the past. The yeah, the present what? is gone as soon as Whoa. you say it. <laughs> so all we have is the past, right? They, the, uh, the bank robber from the 30s, Willie Sutton, they said, Willie, why, why do you rob banks? He said, well, that's because that's where the money is. Right. So like, <laughs> why do we study the past? Well, that's where the data are. If you want to understand this perilous future that we're sailing into, you have to study the past because you don't have a choice. And all we ever have is the past. That's kind of mind blowing. Right. Makes me want to get stoned right now. Think about that. man. <laughs> hey, you, you uh, were part of a symposium associated with COP21 and you went to Edinburgh. I did. Uh, yeah. And you climbed Arthur's seat, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I led a field trip there to look at one of James Hutton's field sites. Hey there, in case you didn't know, Arthur's Seat is an ancient dormant volcano. Its craggy cliffs are visible from anywhere in Edinburgh, Scotland. It is a tradition after drinking scotch whiskey all night long to climb the famed peak to watch the sunrise and contemplate life and what it's all about, all bleary-eyed and hungover. Arthur's Seat is often mentioned as one of the possible locations for Camelot, the mythical castle and court of the legendary warrior chief, King Arthur. To look at one of James Hutton's field sites, it's a place where he saw uh, granite intruding into pre-existing rock. Uh, it's called the Salisbury Crags. They have great right. names there. And um, previous to that, scientists thought that granite was a marine precipitate. And so oh. this helped him establish that granite actually comes from molten rock and, and that the earth is capable of recycling itself. And then two years ago, also in Scotland, I led a field trip to Sikar Point, which is, you know, geology church to me. And that is, that is giant folding bands of uh, sediment. It's it's um, it's cross cut 
uh, beds that have been tilted several times and right. thrown into a cliff. And, you know, one of the things that I just love about geology is James Hutton with a rowboat and a hammer figured out that we live on an old planet. Yeah. And that's just amazing. Mm. Yeah. And he used Hadrian's wall. He said, well, if Hadrian's wall, which is the wall built by the Romans when they mm -hmm. occupied Britain to keep the Scots out, he said, hey, these bricks, these stones that they cut were, were square. They had square quarters, but they eroded. And they only eroded two millimeters in 1,800 years. And so he went to the I, beach mm -hmm. and he said, oh, my goodness, the Bible is wrong. This is not a 10,000-year-old planet. Yeah, and, and I love that, that he used Hadrian's Wall as the uh, yardstick. That's right. Yeah, and he wrote in uh, his Theory of the Earth, great title, um, that the earth uh, reveals no vestige of a beginning and no prospect of an end. He didn't have the tools to, you know, chemically date rocks, but all of a sudden he opened up this vast swath of geological time for us, which then, you know, a half a century later, Darwin walks into. And, you know, Darwin was really kind of a disciple of Charles Lyell, who picked up on Hutton's work. Hutton's work didn't he wasn't the best writer. He was dying at the time, so probably not his fault. But, um, but Charles Lyell picks up on the idea, writes a beautiful three-volume set. The first volume is gifted to Darwin as he gets on the HMS Beagle for his trip. Wow. Oh, really? Darwin, wow. Yeah. When yeah. Darwin gets on the boat, he's a young Earth creationist. Um, by the time he gets to uh, the uh, Cape Verde Isles, he's consumed Lyell's first volume, and now he's flipped. By the time he gets to Montevideo in South America, he holds up the expedition to wait for a mailboat because he knows the second volume is coming. By the time he gets to Patagonia, he's just flat out plagiarizing uh, Charles Lyell. And he writes in a letter to his cousin that I, I have become a, a, a zealot uh, adherent of the works of Charles Lyell and, and am tempted to take it even further than he does. And so, <laughs> you know, no, no Hutton and Lyell, no Darwin. And it reminds wow. me of, you know, jazz, right? Like when, um, when Louis Armstrong died, Miles Davis was asked to eulogize him. He got up and only said, no him, no me. And he sat down. And yeah. when Charles Lyell died, Darwin wrote, I never forget that everything I have accomplished in science, I owe to his great works. He essentially said, no him, no me. Beautiful. You are an explorer, and, and you have, in fact, when you say ice in your tent, I've been there. I know what it's like to wake up, and you're, the water from the night before is frozen solid in your, in your uh, <laughs> cup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Okay. Yeah, so you've been inducted into the Explorers Club, and uh, good on you, man. Uh, yeah. So good, great hanging out with you here. But let me ask you this question, Ken. If you could go back in time... What time period would you go back to and what would you want to see? That's all we have is the past. Where in the past do you want to go, man? That's a tough one. I mean, I, I kind of have to go back and see Dreadnoughtus. Like, I oh. feel a, a familial obligation for that. But yeah. honestly, honestly, I, I want to go back and see the Burgess Shale. Ah. <laughs> That's just crazy town happening there. You know, life yeah. is just doing every possible experiment. And yeah. it's so profound. Like, if this thing makes it, if little Pikea makes it, well, then we get 
camels and wombats and hoary bats. And if it doesn't, then we never get those things or blue whales. Or if this thing makes it, then we have octopus. And if it doesn't, then we never will. And it's just so profound. Right. You know, I, I keep imagining what it'd be like to go tide pooling in the Burgess Shale. You know, oh, look over here. <laughs> oh, what's incredible. that? And then, when I was uh, a child, there was a uh, toy called a cootie bug, which looks like hallucinogenia. I don't remember that. But when my son was young, we would make hallucinogenia out of a gummy worm and toothpicks. That ah, works pretty there well. There you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, watch right. out for the anomalocaris. <laughs> yeah. He'll gum you to death with those spines. Well, he had teeth. Well, he had kind of well, like... Well, no, they had the garbage disposal mouth. He had like this sort of pencil sharpener thing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Now, I'm going to pretend like I'm not reading this. <laughs> As director of the Rowan University's Gene and Rick Edelman Fossil Park Museum, you must be proud that the project will be New Jersey's largest zero-net carbon building. As the museum will not only be teaching about sustainability, but setting an empirical example as well. So good on you for that. I mean, that just what a great achievement. So with the existential threat of a sixth extinction from human-caused global heating, biodiversity loss, and the destruction of our oceans, that, that threat is hanging over all our heads. I mean, the average person, I, I think we all feel helpless. What can I do to help stop the human-caused destruction of our planet. So, you know, I think you have to look at it on, on different levels. There's a lot of things that you can do personally, um, right? I mean, you can, you can buy a, an electric vehicle or, or you can get a heat pump in your house so you go electric. So as your state's power grid becomes more and more renewable, you go along with it. Um, you can reuse rather than purchase. You can, you know, um, Having worked in Patagonia all those years, I turned into quite a carnivore. You would starve otherwise. Um, but meat has a really huge carbon footprint. And so I'm about 80% veg now. And I'm, you know, trying to reduce the amount that I eat. I, I eat pretty much no red meat now. That's a big help. Red meat, which is delicious, has the biggest uh, footprint. Me too. I'm about 90% vegan too. Are you? Yeah. But really, I mean, the most important thing you can do is vote um, because collectively, you know, us as a nation, the nations of the world are, are the entities that have the capability of solving these problems. And really what governments need to tip the playing field, at least make it level, but maybe tip it towards renewables, towards the sustainable choice. Right now we're still, you know, basically giving the welfare to uh, petroleum companies. Um, we need to tip the scales to encourage development of these technologies so that we end up with the future that we all want. And we have already seen, you know, in the recent past, the capricious stroke of a pen of an ill-informed leader can just wipe out decades of, of progress. And so, you know, right now I'm pretty much a single issue voter. I'm voting for the climate and, you know, anybody who is willing to um, support legislation that leads to a more sustainable future is, is somebody that I'm interested in supporting. Yeah. Vote well, for the planet. Yeah. Vote for the climate. You don't really have a choice. I mean, the Pentagon calls climate change, which I, you know, climate change kind of sounds nice. I try to call it the climate crisis because that's what it is. The Pentagon calls the climate crisis the great threat amplifier. And it's true. So, you know, think about whatever issues you're passionate about. It could be social issues, could be medical issues, environmental issues. 
none of those get solved if we don't solve the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. None of that gets better. So you know, everyone needs to needs to vote um, for a healthy planet. Well, how can you vote if you have no faith in the politicians? Well, you got to do what you can, man. Yeah, you got to do what you can. We got to find the people. Write those letters. uh, Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, wow, that was great, Ken. I really enjoyed talking to you. I am so glad to have you here um, sharing your paleo nerddom with us. Well, I'm also really appreciative of your devotion to saving our planet and, and the steps you're taking, the physical, actual steps you are taking to make it so it's it's commendable and brilliant and thank you well thank you i appreciate it and uh thanks for doing this podcast it's great it's uh you know i think it's a it's a great tool to get people thinking about the earth yeah hey and uh, i hope that i get to jam with you someday man oh i would love that at the opening i'll be out at there the opening you are invited <laughs> all right well thanks goodbye ken it was great having you been my pleasure take care thanks ken well, that was surprising because we went and talked to dinosaurs and ended up saving the earth. <laughs> Funny how it uh, all comes into focus, you know, like that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, it was kind of mind-blowing. Really, all we ever have is the past, and that, that yeah. interview is in the past now. So the greatest mass extinction on planet Earth is known as the Great uh, Permian-Triassic, right? The Great Dying, yes. The Great Dying, which was caused through mostly volcanism, right? Yeah, that and the combination of uh, Pangea and, you know, the land masses and super... Yeah, yeah, big, huge rift valley opens up and spews Super dry interior and the climate is easy to tip one way or the other and one ocean. The ocean went dead then. Yeah, but that was from climate change. That was from all the sulfur in the air and all the the global heating. Yeah, when the uh, when the Earth opens up and spews out, you know, the lava, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, and I think what's great is that uh, in one of Ken Lacavera's talks, he makes that analogy that what we're doing now is what the Earth did naturally way back then. Yeah, actually, I like the analogy, too, they use with the uh, chugging a six-pack in less than an hour. (laughs) (laughs) That that I can remember. Yeah. I'm going to remember that from this episode, and also tipping over a giant sauropod. All you have to do is uh, knock him over, but just try again. No, you'd need one of those giant mining trucks with the 20-foot wheels to tip over a giant Yeah, you got to trick him into going down the valley or something, or I don't know, you know, but little... Well, you know what? There was a scene, which just reminded me, in the King Kong that was done by... uh, Yeah. That was uh, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Well, there's a scene where these T-Rexes and sauropods are literally falling down a very steep crevasse in, in a landslide and people are running away from them. But you can see the, the, the special effects artists did, they added weight and gravity to these creatures. And you saw the weight as they hit and kind of semi bounced and broke bones. It was, it was scary, but. Um, well, you know, the idea that the sauropods had basically these hollow bones full of air, that's, that's what birds do. Birds. Yeah. Do but that. I think he was talking about the, the uh, the backs, their their um, spinal column was where they found these the air sacs, pneumatic, yeah, these pneumatic pockets. And to me, that seems like the bones higher up on such a heavy beast would want to be lighter than the ones 
Uh, who knows? Well, that's know. what, you know, what's cool about the sauropod experts, you know, many of them are, you know, they argue about the physiology of these animals. And there was a time for a while where like, no, 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 they couldn't raise their necks because they would pass out, you know, but, <laughs> but they had, so they were really. I know the feeling. Right. But so they were like mowing stuff. But, you know, the one thing actually in hindsight, maybe I'll, I'll text him this or I'll uh, email him. Could they run? Do you think a sauropod could run knowing that those bones maybe were that delicate with the massive beast that if it fell, it would I break think it? when you watch those, uh, not the land before time, or, you, you know, dinosaur. Well, sure, they run animations. in that. We're asking a yeah, scientist, though. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I think these these animators do try to base some of the stuff on the what is known at the time. But could they run? I, no, I bet you they could do a, a like a mini little gallop. I'll bet, but not not could, like a canter. Could I outrun one, Dave? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Great interview. Lots of fun as always, Dave. And we learn yeah. something every yeah. episode. Every episode, I learn something. And our yeah. listeners, I hope, are learning as we learn. Yeah. And uh, in case you didn't know, this is Paleo Nerds podcast. We never say it at the beginning. You know that, but uh, I think it's pretty evident when you click play. But if you like what you hear uh, or you have a guest suggestion, please email us. You can find the link on our website, paleonerds.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. A great episode, man. And it's uh, snowing. And actually, I've got to go shovel, dude. I have a very long oh. driveway. You don't wow. have to shovel rain, but every now and then yeah. it turns to snow. All right. Well, I'm in Ojai, California, where we actually get a small rain event in a couple days. Stay dry. Get right. an umbrella, man. I have several. We don't use them here in K-Town. They're useless. Why? They would blow away, and it just rains all the freaking time, <laughs> and everybody would be losing their umbrellas. You see people on the streets, you know, with an umbrella in this town. It's like, oh, where are they from? You know they're not from around here. <laughs> so, I love it. That's true. All right, buddy. All right, buddy. Stay dry. Stay now. dry and warm. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.